Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 83 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today I'm speaking with Pate McMichael. Pate Michael is the Associate Director of the School of Journalism at the University of Arizona. He worked as a freelance magazine journalist in Georgia for 15 years. He's written two books, and his work has appeared in The Bitter Southerner, The Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Atlanta Magazine, St. Louis Magazine, and Zocalo Public Square. I invited him onto the podcast today after reading his second book, published in 2019, entitled Operation Chrysler. Stolen Valor Behind Enemy Lines During World War II. It's an incredible story of the murder of an OSS officer named Major William Hollihan, who was killed by his own men while serving behind enemy lines in northern Italy in 1944. I was completely shocked by some aspects of this story and knew it was one that all my listeners would want to learn more about. But before we dive into this amazing story, I want to tell you all about my favorite fragrance for daily wear. It's called Novichok by Clandestine Laboratories. Novichok is distinctive and combines notes of cocoa powder, chocolate almond tort, rose, jasmine, cinnamon, tonka bean, Peru balsam, and musk tonkin. Unlike some of the other clones I've worn in the past, I've found that Novichok stays with me all day, which was a pleasant surprise. If the name sounds familiar to you, then you might already know why I was so happy to find this company and support them. The name itself comes from the very well-known Russian nerve agent Novichok, which has been used in recent years in several assassination attempts, which I've covered here on the podcast in previous episodes. The name is spelled differently, but rest assured, once you put this on, you'll still make a killer impression wherever you go. Novichok is made in small batches by clandestine laboratories and, like their entire lineup, is available only via direct order. If you're not sure which of their fragrances is right for you, you can also check out the Discovery Stash, six different mini bottles at one great price, which is perfect for finding your signature scent. So make sure to check them out, either via a link in the show notes of this episode, at their website, clandestinelaboratories.com, or on Instagram, at clandestinelaboratories. Pate, thank you for sitting down with me today. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. I've read a lot of amazing stories over the past few years, but I have to admit that this one was still very shocking and very unexpected for me. In fact, I was kind of surprised not to have found it sooner because of the nature of the story, honestly. Yeah, that's probably my fault. I, I didn't do a great job promoting this book, but I certainly had a great time writing it. <laughs> well, I'm glad that you did, and I'm glad that I did find it. I wish I found it sooner, but I found it, and here we are in the end. So I know that the listeners are going to be riveted as well. So why did you decide to write this particular book in the first place? I mean, did it differ greatly from your previous writings? It did. I've always loved to write true crime, so I guess that's, you know, my brand. But I, I've taken on subjects from all over. This particular story, I, I ran across it at the National Archives. I don't remember the exact circumstances, and I just remember a seed being planted. And on some of my trips to the archives, I might finish research for one project and stay an extra day see what else they had. And, and I came across these files and it, it, it made for an unbelievable experience as a researcher and a writer. Yeah, it, it certainly did. That must be really awe-inspiring, I would have to imagine, to hold the original documents in your hand, because I know that you sent me a few photos of some of the stuff, and it's it really seems fascinating just to kind of dig through all of that and put the pieces together along with the, the old news articles that you reference in the book and everything. And you, you know, you really put it together in a very cohesive storyline and nobody had really done that until you did it, which is what 70 years, no, almost 80 years after the fact it's, it's really an accomplishment. Thanks a lot. I, I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunity to, to try to do this story correctly. It was a forgotten mystery. And, you know, it's a natural 
it's a natural movie. I, I I do have a goal one day of seeing it as a motion picture because of just where it is and the the amazing action and in, in the story. It's it's really one of those those stories that's better than fiction. I agree. I agree totally after finishing it. So for you, was it difficult for you to kind of separate the fact from the fiction after so much time? Because there are very, very different accounts of what actually transpired, as I'm sure we're going to discuss in a few minutes here. Absolutely. It was, you know, I think when I first heard the idea that these guys might've, might've killed their commanding officer behind enemy lines, you know, my impression was that that's probably not true. And, and, and sort of in my own mind, convincing myself, you know, who was responsible and why really came from the research. You know, as a writer, I'm what I call a narrative journalist, and I, I take a lot of pride in the way the story reads, the fact that it reads like a piece of fiction. But, you know, as a journalist, I make every effort to, to give you the best ascertainable version of the truth, and I, I feel like that's what I put in. You know, if there's a bias in, in this type of writing or reporting, it's what we leave out. And, you know, there are many more characters and many more complexities to these these stories. But I feel like it's the writer's job to to tell it as simply as possible and as truthfully as possible. And that's, that's what I tried to do. I hope I succeeded. Yeah. As a, just purely as the reader, I certainly felt like you did. It was a story that I could follow. I mean, it had a lot of twists and turns, which is what we all want to see, which is why we read in the first place, but it was easy to follow. And, you know, I felt like you weren't reaching with the conclusions that you drew, they were entirely based in what really happened and the statements of the people involved and all of that. So felt like you, you put together a really good case for exactly what happened as you wrote it in the book. You know, the thing that I'd like any reader to know is just how much more I wanted to know. And, and what I presented here is really what I could establish and what I could even find this far gone with so many people being deceased. And it was really fun to, to try to hunt down where these folks ended up and and how everything shook out in the end. And, and we'll get into that, I know, as we talk about the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. That's one of the kind of hallmarks of so many of these stories that I have, I have covered and discussed here on the podcast is they're always lingering questions in the end. And it's very, very rare to have like a, a case closed kind of thing at the conclusion of any of our discussions. So, you know, some of that's based on things that have not been declassified yet. Some of it is, like you said, the people have long since passed away and may have been lying about what happened the whole time. And, you know, some things just will never be known for other reasons either. So it's a little bit frustrating, but it's, it's equal parts intriguing as well. It certainly is. I think that's the, the, the great thing about nonfiction. There's, there's always another a way to extend the story and, and continue to, to grind on it. So I look mm -hmm. forward. If, if anybody does dig something up, I missed, that'd be fun to see. <laughs> I bet, I bet it would. So Operation Chrysler is the title of the book. What exactly was the Operation Chrysler? What was the mission objective there for that team? Chrysler was basically two missions combined into one. Now, that's an area where I try to simplify the story. What these teams were doing is essentially Chrysler became a mission to go into northern Italy behind enemy lines, way behind enemy lines, and organize the partisans that had taken to the hills and were you know, looking to get armed and looking to push the fascists out of Italy and take over the country themselves. And there had become a real concern after what happened in Greece that this could lead to a civil war. And the thought was, we better get some guys there that can organize the good guys and, you know, try to bring a regime in, into power, you know, that that's going to be more reflective of U.S. interests, not Soviet interests. And so it really was almost like a Cold War type of thing where they were particularly concerned about the communists taking over. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's funny you said that they have to go in and organize the good guys, but it's a lot more complex than a kind of a black and white situation like that, as you covered really well in the book, because these are all groups with very different ideas of what should happen and what, what should occur at the end of the war as well, right? Can you talk about some of the groups that these guys were going to have to work with in Northern Italy? Absolutely. I'm certainly not a not an expert on them, but you had all kinds of different ideologies and interests. You had the communists, I believe they're called the Garibaldi. Sorry if my Italian's not great. They were probably the most, definitely the most powerful group. You had 
Christian Democrats, you had Democratic Socialists, you had anarchists. Um, really, you know, in Italy with the different dialects and the different regions, you, you also have just significant cultural issues with getting these groups to work together. But before this mission arrived, they had installed a radio in Milan and they had this organization, this committee that was trying to unite the partisans and they, they put some really amazing people in charge of that. And that, that's really what Chrysler was coordinating with, was this committee for national. Okay. Well, this committee, was this Italians or was this OSS personnel or someone else? They were, they were Italians. They were sometimes trained by the OSS and given OSS resources, maybe even flying in on OSS planes. One of the most interesting people in the book is a guy they, that I call Captain Landy. He was an economics professor turned partisan and really was just an awesome guy, a solid human who coordinated a lot of the intelligence that Chrysler was gathering and would radio it, you know, where it needed to go. You know, and then you had other opportunists out there, like a guy named Giorgio, who was a partisan that took the mission in and helped them find a home, a place to stay up in Lake Orta. And he turned out to be not as scrupulous. So it was just a, I think a very tough nut to crack for the OSS. And this mission was, was given a very hard job. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. These particular groups, were they at odds with each other? Like, were they about to come into conflict or had they in the past? Or were they just not willing to work on or not create like a unified front against, you know, German occupying forces? I mean, was there actual, you know, conflict between these different Italian groups? There was a lot of conflict. One of the things that would happen rather frequently is when the OSS or anybody would drop weapons in there sometimes a rival group would steal them and you know they might be shooting the british for instance we were also competing with them and they were sending people behind enemy lines to do the same thing and sometimes our group and their group weren't on the same page at the same time you have these huge mop-up operations that the germans are doing where all these partisans have to scatter you know and they mostly can only attack in sort of an ambush fashion and sometimes they're attacking each other rather than attack the enemy, which is kind of why Chrysler was there to see, try to see, can mm. we work together, right? Sure. So Major Hollihan is picked to lead this mission. What was, why was he picked? What were his skills that he brought to the table that he was the perfect guy for the job? Not to correct you, I, I think his name is Houlihan, but it could be, oh, I Houlihan. think it okay. is Houlihan. Oh, I've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time. Well, though. I did. I did for a long time myself. You know, and, and I'm still not certain I'm pronouncing all these names right because, you know, this is such an old story. There's, mm-hmm. I, I may be the only person that really knows it well, but Captain Houlihan was a longtime army hand. He was in the cavalry. He loved the military. By training, though, he was a Harvard lawyer. I mean, he's a very smart guy, and he was very connected. He was connected to a Supreme Court Justice, Justice Douglas. So he, he had an intriguing life. As a young person, he had been on a merchant marine, and he had seen the world. And, and one of his supervisors said, you know, he was particularly capable of being very open-minded because of his travels. And he was, I, I just kind of frame him as a restless soul, longtime bachelor, no family other than, you know, his brother and his mom and dad who were deceased. And he he became very, did not like practicing law and wanted more action and was particularly looking to get involved in fighting the fascist. I was able to discover some of his military personnel records through FOIA. And I found that he had actually gone on a secret mission in South America to try to see what the Germans were up to in some of the countries down there where we know they were plotting. So he, he had, he had kind of made it clear to people and he, that he wanted some action. And then ultimately he was recruited by a professor at Harvard, a lot like a skull and bones type of thing. Um, Hmm. And, you know, it, it makes sense. Because of his age, he, he would have needed someone probably 
to, to put in a word for him. And he, he showed up in, in Washington and joined up. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how many guys came from that set and seemed ultimately like perfectly suited for the work that they were given <clears throat> in OSS and then later on in CIA as well. It was a kind of a surprisingly small circle there, but an adventurous type like him and very accomplished already would have been perfect, I'm sure. And what about the members of his team? Who else did he drop in with? Well, that was the beauty of the story is you know, these are all just very normal Americans, you know, from different backgrounds. Houlihan's from Manhattan. The other guys on the team that become very important to the story are a guy named Carl LaDolce, who is from Rochester, New York, and works in a factory. And then maybe the the equal to Houlihan would be Aldo Accardi, who was from Pittsburgh. He was a young man straight out of college, joined the OSS and made quite a name for himself as a as a war hero and a, and a great spy. Hmm. So it's a very small team in the end then, I guess. There were a few other guys in the team that jumped, but when they got to Lake Orta, which is, this is really a remote part of Italy up near the Swiss border above Milan, they they jumped and they... They were taken in by partisans that were friendlies. Half of the team went on a mission that went really south, and two of the members had to escape into Switzerland through a mountain pass. So that's why in the book I, I don't focus too heavily on the core group because they were only together you know, for a few days before they got split up, and it was really Houlihan and LaDolce and Accardi that work together the most, uh, you know, the longest amount of time. Mm -hmm. Okay. I see. <clears throat> now, if I recall correctly, both of the others, Accardi and Lodulce, they were Italian speakers, weren't they? They were ethnic Italians. They were. Accardi liked to say he was conceived in Italy and born in the U S <laughs> <laughs> but he spoke the actual dialect of that region, which Lodulce did not do. Lodulce was of Sicilian heritage. So his, his Italian is very different from the Italian that you would hear near Lake Orta where they jumped. And he was a second generation, I believe, Italian-American. Okay. I see. Was that primarily why they were chosen because of their ethnicity and language skills or did they, were they like really good radio operators or, you know, I don't know what else. They, they were chosen. Yes, because they were young and they were willing to fight and they spoke the language they work well together. Absolutely. That's why. And, and in fact, that's where this tension developed. So my understanding of what happened is Accardi was led to believe he was going to run the mission, but there was a Virginian in charge of the OSS at this time, a guy named Captain Sulling. And I found his papers at the University of Virginia. He was a tobacco merchant. And he was a little older, and he became very good friends with Major Houlihan. And he knew Houlihan wanted to jump, and he wanted to go fight. And he thought, you know, I'm going to put this older non-Italian in with this group to keep them in line and make sure they do what I want them to do. And there's actually some documentation of a rift in the group just before they jumped. Major Houlihan wrote to Captain Sulling saying that Cardi was being, you know, was sulking a little bit because he had lost command. <laughs> and boy, did mm -hmm. that have ramifications later. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I've got you. Okay. So initially, at least, once they drop in, did they have any success in actually uniting those disparate Italian partisan groups, or what, did that just get scrapped right off the bat? You know, I think they did have success as best as I could judge from the, the OSS records. So they jump and they land in this on this lazy mountain called the, the Matarón, which is right near Lake Orta. But then all of a sudden the Germans do a mop-up operation and that other group of the team goes into Switzerland and they're out of the picture. And so what fateful decision was made is there was a a guy named Giorgio who had started his own little band of partisans who befriended Accardi and Major Houlihan, and he offered to give them safe passage to a, 
a lakeside mansion on Lake Orta that had been owned and abandoned by a fascist. And so they, they went their own way and they remained in uniform, which is very dangerous, and they just hid out. But even though they were in hiding, they were able to make inroads and in trying to meet up, particularly with the communists. There was a fateful meeting between Houlihan and this, this famous partisan, Moscatelli, who was the head of the Garibaldi. And that process was, was going relatively well. They were starting to make a few drops of supplies. And what Major Houlihan was trying to do was to make sure that those supplies didn't all end up in the hands of the communists. He was also trying to make sure they didn't send too many weapons because they didn't want to overarm the partisans for fear that those guns later right, could be used to take over the country. So that's where a lot of the tension developed was the partisans wanted everything and they wanted it now. And Houlihan <laughs> had to be kind of sober-minded about who to trust and, and what to promise. Whereas, you know, Accardi and LaDolce, they looked the part. They were Italian. They could have easily fit in without their uniforms. They could have easily lived a more comfortable existence, you know, staying with the communists and being under their protection. But Houlihan was adamant about remaining independent. And that put them in danger because they were constantly being chased and, and run out of one safe house to another. Some very dramatic events, jumping in boats at night. You know, it's, 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 it's a mm -hmm. surreal thing to imagine. Yeah, I mean, they were always in danger was the impression I got. The Germans were very, very good at figuring out what was going on and aggressively pursuing all of these partisan groups throughout is kind of what it seemed like. So is that, was that the primary source of the tension? Was these disagreements over how Houlihan was running the mission or was there anything else going on as well? Yeah, there were a couple things going on. So one thing that I want people to know that are just learning about this for the first time is this lake, Lake Orta, is a smaller lake that a lot of people, even Italians, <laughs> haven't been to or don't know that much about. But in the middle of the lake, there's this beautiful monastery and it was the priest in that monastery that were really protecting the mission in fact several times they had to go take refuge there and Houlihan was a very religious guy is, is the way he was described as a sort of a ardent catholic and so you know he didn't want the mission to be seen in public and so he didn't let the guys go out as much. And, you know, they were girls and it was fun to be had. And he wasn't, he wasn't really letting that go on. The other thing is they had gold and they had to broker that gold to turn it in, you know, to currency to be able to buy things and, and support themselves. And in the process of that, Aldo Accardi and Giorgio, the partisan that was protecting them, they stole quite a bit of the mission's funds and actually put that money to use for their own private businesses because they were looking at the post-war and saying, we're going to get rich. And they were effectively stealing American treasury to, to fund their own personal interests, you know. And, and Accardi admitted that later, even though he denied it in his book, he, he originally admitted that when he was under investigation. So, you know, th that was some real tension because it shows you that there was already insubordination going on. And and I think Major Houlihan was very old school and there were some there were some general, you know, generational issues here. These just he was older than the other guys and 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 very strict and and, and sort of rigid about his orders. Hmm. OK, so did was he aware that they had stolen some of that money or did they just become concerned that he would find out they cer he certainly did not know about it right away but there is some evidence that Accardi and Giorgio began to worry that he would find out that that some of the other partisans might tell him particularly a woman that was helping the mission a woman named Marina Dwelly I believe is how you say her name and there's even some reason to believe that she might have been a little sweet on Major Houlihan or he might have been sweet on her. So, you know, it was a very divided group and they weren't all against the Major, but certainly Accardi 
and Giorgio seemed to be plotting against him, and they really recruited Ladolci into that, and that's ultimately you know where the the main action occurred. Hmm. Wow, incredible! So when they dropped in, if I if I recall correctly from the book, they they dropped in with something like four hundred and fifty gold coins, I think, like pure gold coins for trading and 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 exchanging into lira. Is that correct? That's right. They were French gold coins. I, I remember looking this up. It was foreign to me, but they were a certain type of gold coin that, you know, they felt sure they could exchange anywhere. They found a businessman who who brokered this exchange. All of this being done by boat, clandestinely, just just really fascinating black market, you know, type of exchange. And this is at a time when there's really almost no like there's there's very little to eat, there's very little gasoline, there's very few cars. So the money was really just for subsistence, obviously, you know, by protection when they needed it. And the thing was is that they got a huge return on the money. And and I think it was because of how well they did brokering this exchange that Accardi and Giorgio decided they would keep a whole bunch of it for themselves. Hmm. Okay. Okay, so you think then that they, I'm, I'm just kind of speculating here, but like they were sent to exchange the gold and bring back X number of lira and they were able to get like 1.5 times that amount or double or something like that and thought, let's just keep the extra? Or do you think maybe their intent the whole time was to try to steal as much as they could for the post-war period? That's a good question. I don't know the answer. I do know that they did start a business together a woodworking business that ultimately failed. I think they were going to make like wooden toys and try to sell them in Italy and maybe even in the U S mm. and, you know, there is correspondence to that effect between Accardi and Giorgio when later their, their whole relationship fell apart. There's even some speculation that Accardi's father went to Italy, you know, to go demand the son's money back. So that all happened down the road. Um, mm. But and and that that business was started with those those stolen funds. Okay, wow. Okay, so so there's a lot going on at this point. You've got the guys who are really upset with the. I guess they feel like Hulahan is leading them to into excessive danger with having to wear the uniforms and having to move around constantly to stay ahead of the Germans. And they've stolen this money, and maybe he'll find out sooner or later. And then there's the actual danger from the Germans and all that. So it's quite a tense situation at this point. Is how I'm sensing. Absolutely. I mean, these guys have, you know, there's an account in Accardi's book, who knows how accurate it is, but, you know, they talk about sleeping in the attic of a, of a church and staying there for days and subsisting on nothing. I mean, just like whatever the priest threw up to them and, and being up in that altar above that altar of that church, even to, when services were going on and the Germans are outside, you know, on their heels, they're, they're going to the, the monastery to hide. And so I think it's that, that just deep fear for your life combined with Accardi feeling slighted that his mission would have been taken from him and, and then he wasn't in charge of running it the way he thought it should have been run. And then, of course, this money. So it's it's a lot brewing there, right? There's a lot going on as far as the tension between him and the major. Okay, yeah. So that kind of brings us to the event itself then. So can you start by telling what is reported that happened to Holohan initially? Because obviously they don't say that, you know, we decided to kill him. How was his death or disappearance initially explained? <laughs> yeah, basically... As, as had happened to them before, they were staying in a safe house in this, this beautiful mansion. And some people in town, in fact, the priest, the priest from the monastery had been in town that day and heard some rumors that, that somebody had seen some Americans in the area. And so they felt maybe their cover had been blown and it was time to move again. And so they always would move at night. And so Nearing midnight after having dinner in this mansion, the story went that they packed everything up and they were headed down to the boat that they, they rented a boat called Liberia, which is freedom. And out of nowhere, shots were fired coming from the front of the house towards the lake. They just all 
return fire as fast as they could and they scattered. And so Accardi went one way, LaDolce went the other, and they had two porters with them that also scattered. And the next morning when the dust cleared, everybody made it, fled safely, but there was no sign of Houlihan. He was missing. He, he had vanished. And so the mission basically reorganized in a little town near the lake and one of the representatives from the Committee for National Liberalization, Captain Landy, who ran the OSS Radio Salem, came to investigate. And his immediate conclusion was that there did not appear to be a German attack on these men. And his original conclusion was that they must have just been really scared and maybe somebody mistakenly fired their weapon and that triggered this whole panic. He did not figure out where Houlihan was. There was really no trace of him. And, the, and then the war kept going, right? And so it was many months later that the war ended in the spring of 45. And it was only after the war ended that the Army sent another investigator there. Again, nothing came of it. They actually dynamited the lake just to see if a body would come up. They didn't successfully retrieve a body. And, you know, that could have been the end of it. Every day, you're under attack, whether you realize it or not. Your digital devices contain your entire life, your finances, your conversations with friends and family, your interests, and even your movements. And all of that is vulnerable to an ever-expanding class of criminals, scam artists, hackers, and even governments. You don't want to leave your data security entirely in the hands of your ISP or anyone else for that matter. It's up to you to protect yourself using a multi-layered defense strategy. Silent offers you the protection you need to keep your data and devices secure from wireless threats. Their multi-shield technology blocks cellular signals, GPS, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, EMP, RFID, NFC, and more. Silence lineup includes everything from signal blocking wallets all the way up to 40 cubic liter Faraday duffel bags. When you're geared up with Silent, you'll be truly disconnected, undetectable, untraceable, and unhackable. And you can now use the discount code SPYCRAFT101 to save 10% off your order from Silent. Find them at slnt.com. That's slnt.com. Yeah, I mean, it's it makes perfect sense that, you know, quite frankly, they just wouldn't spend a whole lot of time on this issue because people are dying every single day around the world, especially in northern Italy and, and the rest of Europe, I would imagine. So was there initially up through the end of the war, there was no suspicion whatsoever about Accardi and Lodulce or, or Giorgio or any of the others, right? It was just like, well, something happened and and we took casualties and we have to move on. Is that correct? You know, it was a very plausible story. The only suspicious part of it is that Accardi did not actually write up his report for quite a few weeks after it happened. It happened just before Christmas in 1944. And Accardi's report was not turned in until I think the first or second week of January, 45. I mentioned the OSS. Yeah, so Captain Selling was quite suspicious at the time that the story he was hearing from the mission was not the complete truth. But the problem was a British mission, similar in nature, the commanding officer had been captured and sent to a prison camp. And so for some time there was a thought that they would find Houlihan at the end of the war, you know, and they could exchange for him. But then those offers just never came from the Germans. And so as time went on, the story became you know, just one of those those things that people started to question and, and inside the ranks, particularly, I think, among the sort of white Protestants versus the Italian-Americans, tension had developed inside the OSS ranks. And that's a story that hasn't been told very well, but there's a couple people that wrote about it. I think one of the guy's names is Max Corvo. He defended Accardi the whole time, even later, 
when the body was found. And then you had Bill Dolleman in the whole middle of this. And he did make a few statements over the years that he thought the Italian boys had gotten too into politics while they were behind enemy lines, but he thought they were great heroes. He never really took a side, but you could tell that he was holding these two groups together because Houlihan was more of that sort of white Irish Catholic. And yeah, th there was some tension about that. Well, 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 I'm glad that in the end people didn't just kind of let the issue die because there are still a lot of, you know, missing in action, presumed dead, you know, people out there that have never been recovered. But fortunately that did not turn out to be the case here. So at what point after the war did people start to put serious effort into kind of closing the, the book? on this and trying to actively recover Houlihan or at least determine what happened to him. You know, this is an area where I, I really just tried to give readers the most simple way to understand it. There, there were a number of investigators over a long period of time from 1945 to 1950, when the body was found that were sent over there by CID, the criminal investigation division of the army. And they were based out of, I believe you say it, is it Trieste? That's where the headquarters were. And so there were several investigations that came very close. I mean, one of the investigators uncovered the embezzlement. Others uncovered that, you know, it looked like the attack might have been not a real attack. But really where the case broke is kind of a legendary guy named Hank Manfredi, Italian-American, took over the investigation and he just made some very smart decisions. He, he mostly leaned completely on Italians to do the legwork. He coordinated with the Italian police and found a, a pretty talented investigator there. And I believe it was in the spring of 1950 that this Italian detective just knocked on the door of one of the porters and just said, what really happened? And the guy, uh, you know, was so shocked that he, he had a moment of weakness and asked for his priest and confessed. Wow. And, and so the story actually broke in the Italian media that they had actually killed Major Houlihan, that, that they shot him, executed him in his bed after he'd gone to bed and dumped his body in the lake and, and this stuff was running in, in all these Italian periodicals, but there was still no body. There was no proof. It was all speculation. But Manfredi believed it, and so did the Italian investigator that he was using. And so they took another stab at trying to find the remains. And instead of using dynamite, they actually just hired some fishermen to do grappling because they realized that where this porter said the body was, was not as deep as they originally thought. Now you're talking about a mountain lake near the Swiss Alps, you know, the freezing temperatures, like a very cold lake. And so they grappled and suddenly they found a body. And it's no doubt that body was Major Houlihan's. And when they took it to a local, like I think a church to, to do the autopsy, you know, a lot of his remains were actually preserved. Other parts of his body were just down to his skeletal remains. But there was only one bullet hole in his in his skull, and it was clearly an execution. Hmm. It didn't make sense based on the way his body looked that he had been shot from some distance at night by some German snipers. He he'd been executed, and he'd been wrapped up in his own sleeping bag. And so it kind of defied logic that the Germans would take the time to dispose of his remains in that way. You know, he would have been much more valuable to them alive. Right, right. That certainly makes sense. And besides the sleeping bag, he had his personal effects on him as well. Like I think he was still wearing his own wristwatch and, and that sort of thing, wasn't he? Yeah, this image is one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen in my life. It's It's a partially decomposed body and on his on the hand where he has the, the watch, the watch is still there, but on the, the only thing left of his arm are the bones. Hmm. 
It's chilling. And then all his teeth were intact. So they, of course, got his dental records from New York City. And it was very, very easy for them to identify him. He even had pieces of his equipment and his helmet on him that they grappled out of the lake with his initials WH. Hmm. So it is it, it, without a doubt it was him. And, and that was the interesting part is when they did find the body and they told Accardi that they found it, he began to question whether it was really Houlihan's remains. <laughs> yeah, there, there wasn't much doubt, but that certainly didn't put Accardi in a very good light in the end. So did they, <clears throat> this is, Italian investigators digging up this information in Italy five years after the war ended. Those guys are back home. How does that complicate this actual murder investigation? So, you know, Hank Manfredi, using these Italians, has solved the case, right? It's a masterpiece of detective work. They recover the body, and they also recover the murder weapon from the porter, because he had sold the weapon to a neighbor and they were able to get it from the, the guy. So they had, you know, the body and the gun. It's hard to solve it any better than that. But bringing charges against Accardi and La Dolce was very difficult. So in Italy, they did actually conduct a criminal proceeding and they found them both guilty. But, you know... Accardi and Ladolci weren't dumb enough to honor the subpoenas and go to Italy and be tried. So they just said, you know, why would I go and let my former enemy try me for murder when, you know, I killed all these people in war? And so they were convicted in abstention. And in the U.S., the military tried to find any way to charge them. But at that time, believe it or not, if someone had been released from military service, the military could not go back and charge them for crimes they committed overseas once they'd been hmm. released. And in fact, there's a report where they said they had 20 or 30 examples of individuals they knew had committed crimes, but because of this loophole, they got away with it. And so later there was a trial but that was for perjury. Congress set Accardi up, asked him to testify, and when he did testify, they then charged him with perjury. So it was, it was a real perjury trap. And the judge in the case just ultimately dismissed it and said, you can't do this. That's why I'm the one telling the story because the prosecutors never got to introduce this evidence into any trial in the U.S. They had prepared all this these files, but the first or second day of the trial, the judge dismissed the indictment and said, nope, this is against his civil liberties and just went to the National Archives. Wow. wow. So these guys, they did it. They were caught red-handed in a very real way, and they, they totally got away with it at the same time, I guess. they Did they serve even a day in jail? Were they arrested by anyone at any point, handcuffed, anything? Yes, Accardi was arrested and charged with perjury, but you know was out on on bond. I think the same day, Ladolci, I don't believe is ever charged. I'd have to go back and look. The thing about Ladolci that was so interesting is he confessed, and he was at work. I believe he worked at Kodak at the time up in Rochester, and they came and got him out of work, and he admitted it. He, he actually signed a confession that ran in the New York Times. Then he got a lawyer and he, you know, said that he was, he had, he, he had not done it, that he had signed this confession, but it was incomplete is what he said. He was then asked, was he forced to sign this confession? And he said, no, he, he said he was not threatened. So he didn't make a great case <laughs> for himself. And later, what the thing I discovered in my research was that he actually left Rochester, moved to California, and changed his name hmm. <laughs> so that he would not be in the newspaper ever again. Okay, yeah, I can't blame him for that one. At least I can blame him for a lot, but not for changing his name after that. So in his confession, did he, 
he described how it actually occurred, like the night that they killed him, everything that happened. You mentioned that he was shot in his bed, right? Can you kind of walk us through Houlihan's final minutes there? It's an unbelievable thing. So, you know, the Accardi and LaDolce, probably working with Giorgio, if I had to guess, decided to kill him. They trying to get the nerve up to do it. And so what they did is they sent one of the porters who had worked at this manufacturing facility near Lake Orta to go see his former boss because he knew that that boss used a, a chemical, a poison, that they were going to put in Major Houlihan's soup. So the porter did go to his former employer. He did buy or, or get the guy to give him some type of poison. I forget which one. Something that you use when you're making galvanized things, maybe cyanide, I don't know. And because the porters made the meals, he put a little bit into the soup. And he said that Houlihan ate the soup and said, man, it's really hot. Or, you know, like he knew something was off with mm -hmm. it or something, but he, he ate it. And then he went upstairs and started retching, which probably saved his life at the time. So, well, then Accardi and Ladochi are like, well, now he's going to know we tried to poison him. We got to kill him. And so it's never been clear whether they flipped a coin or they drew cards. Both were thrown out there in, in, in stories. But essentially, LaDolce lost, and he's the one that went upstairs and just killed Major Houlihan point blank in his sleep. They subsequently wrapped him in his sleeping bag with most of his effects. They dumped him in the lake. And how they did that is fascinating because I guess they had some experience doing this. The porters did. This was a part of the world where people, there was organized <laughs> crime. And so <laughs> they had this little boat. It's basically a canoe. And they actually laid Houlihan's remains on top of the water. And he, he floated on his sleeping bag. And as they went out onto the lake, it slowly lowered, right? Because it was connected with a rope. And it just went down and hit the bottom of the lake and they cut hmm. the rope. Wow. Yeah, that's very different than and, I would expect from a film one, where they dump it over the side with a big splash. It, I know. It was, and it's amazing how specific they were about it. And so anyway, once that deed was done, they all got packed up. And then in a very dangerous move, which really was unbelievable, they started firing their weapons to simulate a fake attack, which could have cost the lives of you know, their partners and people that protected them. Mm. It was obviously a very reckless and selfish thing to do. And then they, you know, of course, fled the scene and, and, and stood by their story up until, you know, the, up until 1951. Mm. So after all this occurred, like you said earlier, they didn't actually end up being convicted anywhere on this, were they able to live relatively normal lives after this, or are they kind of haunted by the, the press associated with this in their later years or something else? I'd love to know. I mean, by all accounts, they certainly live comfortable lives. I think I wrote in the book, they both live to see the 21st century. I think that's true. I know Accardi was a lawyer for many years in Florida and had a family that loved him very much. He wrote a book called Master Spy, where he, uh, you know, told the, the story of his exploits, which were fascinating. I mean, this guy, after Houlihan dies, takes off his uniform, starts dressing like an Italian, gets a bike, pretends to be a, like a telephone repairman, and he sneaks all over the country, organizing the partisans. He makes it rain guns. He stays very t close with the communist. He he's there when Mussolini is 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 hung. He's you know he's a war hero, and and he gets all the glory, mm -hmm. and writes a book. Right, Ladolci, you know, appears to have been much more troubled by this. First of all, 
La Dolce had a nervous breakdown behind enemy lines. So after killing Houlihan, one night he literally lost it and almost died. He, he jumped out of a window and got disoriented and, and was out in the cold all night, got really sick, hurt his back really bad. And so he ended up getting, you know, he got out of the war that way because he hurt himself. And, you know, I think a lot of it was the guilt that he felt over what he had done. He killed Houlihan in cold blood, you know, tried to reconnect to his life in Rochester. He was married at the time. In fact, there's an unbelievable account of his wife learning about these accusations from a news reporter. So, you know, like I said, he moved out to the West Coast, changed his name. He just seemed to be a, a, a person that lived with the the guilt more so than a Cardi who seemed to have almost no regrets and, and defended himself as innocent until the mm. end of his life. Yeah, that's a very different reactions from those two guys. But I guess it's a little bit I would I would speculate that it's easier for a Cardi to separate himself from that since he's not the one who pulled the trigger in the end. So mentally, that would be an easier burden to bear. And also, he might have just been a, a sociopath, you know, in hiding all of that time to begin with, if he kind of put this plot together. You know, both have children that are still alive, and I, I did reach out to them, and, and none of them even responded mm. to me, which I even wrote a letter to LaDolce's son. And when I moved to California, you know, I, I, I started to drive by his house, but I just mm-hmm. never did. I thought, you know, he, what would he actually know? You know, but it, it, it's one of those unique situations where Houlihan, you know, was the only thing that he got was his brother really loved him. And when the body was finally cleared to be released after they prosecuted McCarty and LaDolce, they, they brought it back on a ship and there was a very beautiful ceremony at St. Patrick's in New York. There were over 2000 people there. So he did in the end get, you know, a soldier send off, which I, I, I thought was a, a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. You know, I think since you mentioned their sons, I think I found like a blog post or something by Acardi's son. Have you have you seen that yourself? Yes, I, absolute, I absolutely yeah, did. He's refuting yeah, everything he's, that, you know, puts the murder on his father, you know, which I kind of expect a son to do as well. But I mean, he he states a very different case than what you found through your own research. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know. Because here's the thing, these pictures and this evidence, right, it just never, the public never got to see it. And the person who really brought this to the American attention was a a journalist named Michael Stern, who wrote for these men's magazines. And at that time, you know, a journalist could make quite a bit of money with a story like this. They had a famous New Yorker editor help him with it. Problem was he made some stupid factual mistakes that were easy for Accardi to undercut. I mean, they even had a picture that had a caption that identified the wrong person. Oh wow! <laughs> so it said it, it was actually you know it was it was it was just a shoddy piece of journalism. And I'm a journalism teacher, so <laughs> that that was kind of so fascinating to me. But that really insulated Accardi and then the way Congress treated him, you know, trapping him for perjury, you know, he played this card of it would being un-American, which, you know, in some ways it is what they did to him. And then he had this famous lawyer, Bennett Williams. This guy's a legendary lawyer. He's, he'd be a great movie, great biography. He's a guy that ended up owning the Redskins at one time. He defended Accardi for free. You know, just a brilliant PR move. Got him off. They drank scotch together in front of the reporters and celebrated his innocence. And so Accardi was really shrewd in how he, you know, he played the reasonable doubt card in people's minds and pretty fearless, you know, to, to to do that at that time. But yeah, you know, it, it always amazed me that, that no one leaked out, you know, the images of Houlihan's remains, which I think once you see that, you know, you realize like this was a cold-blooded murder and that's mm-hmm. all it was. Certainly that, that made the biggest impression on me was just seeing the body and seeing the bullet impression in the skull and and thinking through, you know, 
what would have had to have been the most miraculous shot in the history of the world <laughs> yeah. had the Germans got him at pitch black darkness from, you know, I don't know, a couple dozen yards away or whatever it would have been. But, you know, there was never any evidence of an attack. And, and when the investigators went to this house, they only saw bullet fragments coming from the lake. They never saw any bullets coming from the driveway of the house towards the lake, which meant the guys, when they fired their weapons, they, you know, they shot in the direction of what would have been an attack, but there was no, there was no German yeah. fire. And, and there's other evidence, but you know, that's pretty the, the core evidence that makes me think Accardi and his family, you know, just, just were living in mm -hmm. denial. Yeah. That's unfortunate. I mean, it would be hard to face the possibility of your, your father having killed somebody you know, his own team member during the war. I definitely understand that, but. Well, and, and he may have in his own mind felt that that was the only way he could survive that situation. And I, I thought about that quite a bit. You know, if the accounts that Accardi wrote in his book about the way they were being hunted are true, which I have doubts that I have doubts about how close the Germans might've been on some of those occasions. I think I write in the book that there appears to be some conflicting accounts about how close the Germans were when they were hiding in that church. But nonetheless, I don't think any person would be not afraid for their lives. And if Houlihan was the problem, you know, you could see how someone in that kind of fear could make that type of awful decision. But I, I believe they did make it, and I, and I believe they did it because they'd stolen the money and they wanted the safety that the communists and the comfort that the communists could provide. And I think Accardi just saw an opportunity, you know, to be a, a hero, and, and he certainly mm -hmm. pulled it off. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It, it worked out really well in his favor, all things considered. And, you know, I, I know it's certainly true that, you know, people have in war, killed their commanding officer, or their leadership, because they were about to get everybody else killed, that kind of thing. So I wouldn't say it's understandable or defendable, but it, it's feasible. It has happened in the past. But honestly, the stealing of the money ahead of time, it really taints any possibility in my mind that this was simply an act of proactive self-defense, I guess you could put it, especially when the guy's laying in his bed at night having just been poisoned. So it's it's really it's really tough to put that in a positive light after the guys have already been engaging in criminal behavior while on, you know, one of the most important missions of their life. Absolutely. And the thing that really persuaded me was that there were a number of the Italians that they worked with that knew he did it and knew that the story didn't add up and did not like him. Yeah. In fact, there was a woman because all of these people, that's the thing, all of these Italians that helped the mission, they were subpoenaed, and the U.S. government paid to bring them all from Italy. They stayed at a hotel in Washington. They, they were waiting to testify at trial, and the charges got dropped on the second day, and the government spent oh, wow. God knows how much money bringing all these people here. And so, you know, that's how committed they were to, to justice. And and they 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 did this out of respect for Houlihan that that he had he had earned the respect of a number of the partisans, and so it wasn't as if you know, you know, if people had asked more questions at the time, they might have learned more about Accardi, and 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 there might have been more suspicion cast on mm -hmm. him. Makes sense. Yeah, that does speak volumes to his leadership. If the the partisans themselves were so willing to defend him years afterwards, years after he had died. They were willing to go to that amount of trouble to try to get to the truth behind what had happened. And I have to tell you, there's, there's one yeah, other Captain thing Landy. that I, I don't yeah. like about Accardi either, and it's, it's kind of petty, but he titled his autobiography Master Spy. But if, if I'm not mistaken, he was only in Italy basically for a few months. Wasn't it like five or six months that he was on that mission, the Operation Chrysler mission? Yeah, maybe a, a little longer. I think they jumped in September of 44. Okay. And when did he get pulled out? It's probably like, I think he was there to okay. the very end, like probably May. So, but, you know, much more so than a spy. I mean, his, his job at the time, the thing that made him successful was, 
when Houlihan was removed from the situation, he found these communist partisans, Moscatelli's group, to protect him. And he just, I mean, he dropped so many weapons into Italy. And, and a lot of those weapons were buried. And there was real concern that those weapons would be used, you know, to start a civil war. So, you know, he did the things that were good for him to keep his protectors happy. And he did a lot of brave things to sabotage the Germans and, and get them, you know, run out of the country. But he was savvy in, 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 in the way he built his own profile at the same time. And General Donovan never, ever threw him under the bus. He, he actually called him a gallant mm. soldier, even, even after these allegations cropped up. And I, I always found that really, really disturbing that, that Donovan, you know, never was willing to, to, to admit what they'd done. I'm sure he probably knew, you know, once that the body was recovered and all the, the stuff came out, but he, he, he wasn't going to sully the legacy of the OSS. And, and I think he just hated this, mm -hmm. you know, that's just what I was thinking. He was protecting the reputation of the organization over the reputation of this one guy, you know, yeah, no doubt about sense. it. Unfortunate, but it's it's a reality, certainly. Well, Pete, this is an incredible story here. It, it really is fascinating stuff, and I'm very glad that you were able to bring it to light and that I was able to read it as well. Are you working on another book right now, or are you doing something else? Yeah, I am. I've been taking a little bit of a break. My job responsibilities have gotten much more than they were at the time of this, but there's a story... I've completed the research on, it's a story about a, a man that basically vanished off the streets of New York City in 1956, about the same time McCarty was going on trial. And it's amazing how these two dovetail, but there's something about that year that appeals to me. And so this is the story of a guy named Jesus Galindez. It's a very obscure story too. Another find at the National Archives and other places, many other places so I look forward to writing it, and I hope to do it this summer. So I'll, I'll keep you posted when it when it's going to come okay, out. Okay, yeah, absolutely do. That sounds interesting. I can't get enough of these stories in that time period as well, quite frankly. Well, and this guy was a spy. Oh, so okay. he was, he was a he was an FBI informant and and also a spy for the the Basque. You know, the Basque lost oh, yeah. their country during the Spanish okay, Civil well. War, and he was he was an immigrant. So it, it's a good story. It, it's 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 crazy some of the the things that happened in that case. I'll bet. I'll bet. Yeah, definitely keep me on the loop on that once you're um, ready to publish or something. I, I would love to read that. Sounds great. I sure. So, will. do you have a like public facing social media or anything like that? If my listeners want to connect with you after they listen to this episode. Absolutely. So I am on Facebook under Pate McMichael. I also have an Instagram, Pate McMichael, and I have an Amazon page where you can find the book and you can see my other book, Clandestine, which is a, a look at the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination, basically an investigation into one of the lawyers who defended the killer. So please check it out. Just read it. That's all I, I, I want. You know, I just want people to read the book and enjoy the stories because they're hope, hopefully you get as much enjoyment as, as I did researching them. Yeah, I, I can certainly attest to that with this book. So once again, for the listeners, the book title is Operation Chrysler, Stolen Valor Behind Enemy Lines During World War II. And Pete, I don't know if you're running a special on it right now or something, but I just picked it up. It was only $2.99 on Amazon when I got it. And that's, that's an unbeatable price, honestly, for this story. So if that's still the price when the listeners find it, then, you know, you definitely got to pick it up at that rate. You're getting a lot of value there. I'm not changing. Yeah. I'm not changing the price. You know, you can get a hard copy for five bucks oh, wow. too. I self published the book, you know, the publishing business is, is, is terrible <laughs> unless you're really famous. For me, this was really a passion project. And, and my goal was get the story out and, honor the legacy of Major Houlihan. That was my whole goal. That's why I published it on the day of his death. It was just, it was just an honor to, to tell this man's Fantastic. story. Well, you did a great job with it, certainly, and I'm very glad I found it. So thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate you sharing your research with us this time, Pete. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. Have a good one. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my pages on Instagram, at Spycraft 101 and at cold.war.stamps. You can also find more great articles on my website, spycraft101.com. 
Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come. Disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The stories and statements expressed herein are experiences and opinions. They may not reflect the views of the host or the production studio. It's okay if you disagree with our content. No piece of media is right for everyone. If you love Spycraft 101, please check us out online, on Instagram, on YouTube, and especially on Patreon. Thank you for listening.